Hello, and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. This week, we're talking about Ukraine, the EU, and the role of Viktor Orban, Hungary's right-wing populist prime minister. Next week in Brussels, EU leaders will meet in a specially convened summit to try, once again, to find a way to agree a 50 billion euro aid package for Kyiv. Holding things up, however, is Hungary. We'll talk about how the EU is trying to help Ukraine and why the support package has been opposed by Orban, who has been accused of holding the bloc to ransom. We'll also discuss the challenges that President Joe Biden is facing in getting his aid package through a Congress increasingly skeptical of aid for Ukraine. Joining me in the studio to discuss these topics, I have a great pair of voices here, both from Chatham House, journalist Olga Tokaruk, an Open Society University Network Academy Fellow in our Ukraine Forum here, also a journalist of long standing who covered the Maidan protests. Welcome. Hello, and thank you for having me. Very good to have you here. And joining us as well is Natalie Sabanazzi, Senior Research Fellow in our Russia and Eurasia program. Welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Very glad to have you. And I should say that you previously served as the ambassador of Georgia to the European Union. That's correct. It is, I would think, endlessly relevant to this. Yes. <laughs> we'll come on to that. Let's start with Ukraine, the EU, and the role of Viktor Orban and Hungary. Natalie, let's start with this basic question of the aid package. What is it? Well, this is supposed to be part of multinational financial framework, MFF, which in plain English is budget. So EU wants to put this in its budget, which runs from now until 27, and this would be over four years, financial and economic support for Ukraine. It's basically to keep Ukraine going, to keep its economy going and give absolutely necessary essential support for it to survive as a state. So this is different from the military support, and the EU wants to make it part of its budget. And this is where the opposition of Orban comes in. And this budget of the EU, every country contributes and every country has to approve it? Yes. Normally it runs for seven years, and now it's in the middle of the review. And can Hungary oppose this really without any constraints on that? EU is really a fascinating and very complex multilateral institution, which brings all these different countries with different political cultures and practices consensus democracy at a multi, you know, supranational level. So Hungary can do it because it requires consensus. It's a kind of a decision-making process. Of course, part of this uh, culture is a lot of bargaining that goes behind the scenes. And the way EU has developed its decision-making system is that ultimately you have neither losers nor winners. And this is part of, in a way, its charm and how it is trying to deal with the difficulties. You know, you go in and nobody walks out of this summit saying, I've lost this completely. But that means that nobody wins it completely either. So we have to look at this political culture when we look at how EU is dealing with Orban. And part of it was the release of this 10 billion that allowed basically Orban to go and take a break and uh, not veto opening of the accession talks to uh, Ukraine. So these kind of features will come back and we will have to see what happens on 1st of February. But for first time, really, the EU is now saying that we're going to go ahead with it if needed at 26th and find different ways. 
So Orban is finding himself really isolated. Just spell out for us how that can happen, how they can go ahead with just the 26. They will take it out of the budget and make it an intergovernmental agreement. They can also create separate budgets like they have done for covid so there are ways, there are imaginative ways of doing. There are with ways. It. I yeah. love the way we can dis- discuss this as a, the intricate workings of a far-off um, institution, if you like, for <laughs> sitting in a country where the charms yes. of this process were thought to be overstated. Olga, take us into what this means for Ukraine. We've had a lot of anxiety coming out of Kiev. We've had uh, President Zelensky turning up uh, necessarily unannounced at Davos last week to petition for. Uh, Western aid, how much does this particular lump of money and support matter? Well, it is very important. Obviously, it's not the only money that Ukraine is reliant on. The U.S. Uh, aid package is also important, which we will discuss later today. But this money, as Natalie said, is essential also to support Ukrainian economy, not only Ukrainian war effort, not only Ukrainian resistance to uh, a Russian full-scale invasion, because Ukraine still needs to pay pensions, it needs to pay salaries, it needs to pay social support to people, to an increasing number of people who need that support because they lost their houses, they might have acquired a disability, or, you know, they lost their income. So Ukraine is really reliant on the assistance of its partners and the EU in particular. And Ukrainian officials have been stressing repeatedly how uh, important that support is, uh, not just, uh, as I said, for the Ukrainian military effort, but also for the Ukrainian economy. There were warnings from the Minister of Economy earlier this year that uh, Ukraine might not be able to continue paying pensions to, uh, you know, its population if uh, the money from the partners isn't coming, which raised the alarm in the society. So people that increased an already high level of anxiety over, you know, the security situation among people who live under constant Russian bombardment, which does not stop, which is continuing these days as we speak. Russia continues to launch missiles and drones on Ukraine, killing civilians basically every day. So that just adds to that already very high level of anxiety, you know, this economic uncertainty. Will the state be able to uh, support the population? Will the economy collapse? The Ukrainian economy actually has been holding pretty well in the last two years since the start of the full-scale invasion. But that is mostly due to this assistance coming from outside Ukraine. All right. How much does the economy depend, for example, on the Ukraine's success in getting the, the Black Sea corridor open for its grain exports? It was it was a big diplomatic triumph. I mean, symbolic triumph, if you like, for Ukraine. Is it is it important in economically? It's very important, but also I think well, obviously, Ukraine is one of the largest grain exporters, so this is a lifeline. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, politically, it is very important yeah. to keep this open. As Olga's saying, being seen to get this money from the EU matters, and then the actual support for the running of the state matters. Just interested, Olga, are you, uh, you just describe how hard things are in Ukraine at the moment. Are you getting the sense that many people are still leaving Ukraine? We are very conscious in these conversations that you know more than 10 million people are said mm. to have left Ukraine. And that when one looks at the future of Ukraine, that is, that is a big drain and a question of whether those people will go back. Maybe that is premature, but right at the moment... Do you have the sense people are still leaving? Well, actually, that's a very interesting issue, and I'm looking at it on my research here at Chatham House as well. Ukrainian government has been repeating that Ukraine needs its people, has been trying to encourage people to return, and many people actually did return, even from, you know, my circle of friends and acquaintances, many of those who have left in the very first days or weeks of the full-scale invasion, returned to Ukraine last year, for example, last summer when it was relatively quiet in Kyiv, so, and, and before the start of a new school year, many mothers would 
children when they had to make a decision, should we prolong our stay somewhere else and send children to school abroad again? They made a decision, no, we are coming back to Kyiv, whatever, like, or, or to other parts of Ukraine, whatever we face there. And obviously, many people cannot return because they have nowhere to return. Uh, but then again, you know, it's not getting much safer. So people did make a decision. They accepted this risk that they would return. But the situation is still, from a security perspective, very dire. And, uh, you know, every day you are faced with uh, Russian missiles and drones. So it's a it's a matter of choice, but it, it does not look very sustainable at this moment. So it, it doesn't look that there is a perspective for quick improvement. However, uh, Ukrainian government uh, has been even like putting, not, uh, I wouldn't say pressure, but like talking to its international, uh, you know, interlocutors in the EU governments and trying to kind of ask them what are the options? How can they encourage also Ukrainians to return or contribute mm. more to the Ukrainian economy? It's a really interesting point, which we'll come back to, I think, in a future podcast. I'm thinking of a brilliant young man I met in Cardiff. He was uh, plunged into studying cyber stuff at um, Welsh universities and, as far as I could see, had no intention of going back to Ukraine. And that is the kind of person that Ukraine is losing, as well as many uh, mothers and children now settled in schools and so on. Another time. Let's go back to the politics of this. Natalie, why is Viktor Orban taking this particular role in Europe? Well, I would say he has three reasons for doing it, if I could summarize it. One is, of course, domestic political. And for his party, for Fidesz party, the question of Hungarian minorities in the neighboring states is very big. It is part of the overall nationalist agenda. One of the first things he did when he came to power the second time was to give voting rights to Hungarians abroad. And this is a big electoral resource for Fidesz. Where are these minorities? They are in various countries. They're in Slovakia, Romania, Serbia, Ukraine. That's the main concentration. So their support gives him a big advantage in local um, elections. So he uh, tries to keep the question of Hungarian minorities uh, high on the agenda. Now, what is interesting here, however, and why I'm skeptical that he's doing it solely for the reasons of really caring about the language or identity rights of Hungarians in Ukraine, is that this issue has come up in all other cases, too. I was actually working on this particular issue when I was at the OSCE for High Commissioner on National Minorities. Part of the job I had was to shuttle between Bratislava and Budapest over the same language issue that Slovakia had passed. It was solved behind the scenes. In all these cases, Orban and Fidesz were supportive of these countries acceding to European Union because the idea was to actually reunite Hungarian nation within the EU. In this case, somehow it is different. While in principle, you would think that obviously Hungarians, Hungarian Ukrainians would also benefit from the EU membership. So that's, um, that's an interesting point there to keep in mind when we speak about domestic politics. On uh, external front, and that is linked to domestic politics, what he wants to do is kind of assert independence and say, even though I'm a member of the club, I want to pursue diverse, independent foreign policy, the so-called multi-vector foreign policy. And he presents himself as a kind of a model of this type. So he goes to the Chinese and Russians, etc. Obviously, this does not come without a cost. The cost is it comes at the expense of solidarity with the uh, fellow member states in the European Union. And finally, of course, it is also about bargaining. Now, there have been considerable funds frozen due to the rule of law issues. 
He managed to uh, release 10 billion, but as far as I remember, there is another 20 or 30 that needs to be released. So it's also part of the uh, process. He's not completely alone in this. I'm thinking outside the EU, but um, well, I think it's Slovakia's Prime Minister, Robert Fico, another populist, somewhat in the Orban model, says in the context of NATO yeah. that he will veto NATO membership for Ukraine, one of the big prizes that is being offered, the re- prizes or elements of reassurance, if you like, that is being offered to President Zelensky in, in Kiev. And uh, Figo also said recently, there's no war in Kiev. How worrying is this kind of rhetoric? Fito and Orban are ideological allies. Fito looks at this kind of hybrid, illiberal, democratic model that uh, Hungary has developed and likes it. Uh, this kind of populist conservatism. So he offers a degree of solidarity. He said that he will also veto any punitive measures that the EU might take. However, we also have to think about the limits of this friendship, again, going back to the history, because while they share this conservative uh, populism, when it comes to the nationalist side of it, Slovaks, Fito and Orban don't make very good bedfellows. So also Slovakia's weight is not that great, neither in the NATO nor in the EU. Slovakia also needs European funds and support. So I would find it very difficult that we, to imagine that we have a consensus in the NATO over Ukraine's membership, and then Slovakia is the only country blocking. If I just may add to that, actually, it is interesting that in Hungary, the support for the EU membership among the population is very high. So it's around 80%. So, you know, for, for Orban, it is mostly a matter of bargaining, really. But he cannot actually disappoint his voters to the point to completely split Hungary's ties with the EU or uh, have a quarrel within the EU that would really damage uh, Hungary's position there. And uh, speaking about Ukraine, it's also interesting that the Hungarian minority in Ukraine actually wrote letters to Orban calling on him to change his stance on Ukraine and saying, well, actually, we are facing no persecution here. We are facing no discrimination. We do not have any issues. And we can't kindly ask you to reconsider your country's position on, uh, you know, Ukraine's EU and NATO membership and the funds for Ukraine and your position on Russia's war of aggression. So it, it, it is mostly about Hungarian domestic, you know, politics, uh, Hungarian bargaining with the EU. So U- Ukraine does not really, did not really do anything wrong that much because, as Natalie said, this situation has been seen in other countries before with the min- minority rights of Hungarians there and been, has been just used as a manipulative tool. There are also mechanisms through which this issue can be addressed. There is OSCE and there is Council of Europe. So, I mean, if wanted to, uh, the question of rights, uh, including minority rights, Mm -hmm. there are plenty of mechanisms to which Hungary can turn to. And Ukraine has just adopted a new minority bill, actually, Mm -hmm. which was under also the request and pressure of the EU to address the concerns expressed by by Orban. You've left me with great confidence about the endless flexibility of these mechanisms, which people have devoted years of their life to developing. Let's swing and talk about the US, our second subject, because there's been a delay there as well in aid with fierce uh, debates in Congress about uh, whether or not the US still wants to keep putting money into Ukraine, keep sending arms to Ukraine. And of course, it's now got very wrapped up in a very heated beginning of the election year, the primaries and so on. Olga, can you take us into the difference between U.S. aid to Ukraine and European aid to Ukraine? 
Yeah, well, so U.S. aid to Ukraine is crucial in terms of Ukraine's military effort and sustaining it and enabling Ukraine to continue resisting Russian aggression. U.S. military aid is also a great kind of example to all the other countries that are looking at the U.S. and seeing, you know, what the U.S. government does, we will do the same. So if there are issues, problems with the U.S. aid to Ukraine, then other countries in the EU might also uh, reconsider or have debates on on that aid. And the Ukrainian government, I think, was maybe a little bit caught by surprise that these issues with the U.S. aid emerged so early. So I think they might have foreseen them emerging rather closer to the election, and especially if Donald Trump wins in the election. But coming, you know, already these debates in Congress at the end of 2023, beginning of 2024, the aid is still not released as we speak. I think that adds like uh, a lot of concern for the Ukrainian government. And we've heard Ukrainian President Zelensky and Foreign Minister Kuleba stress that, well, Ukrainians will still fight. They will resist still. The Foreign Minister even said that we will, if we do not have weapons, we will fight with shovels. Uh, we will fight with whatever we can, because it is seen as such an existential issue. Ukrainians cannot just stop fighting, fighting and for their country. This is a point that the, exactly. you know, the team here makes um, very powerfully and very often that they're, they're fighting for their existence. Yeah, right? and, and also the Ukrainian government is looking at other ways to secure, uh, you know, that, that they have the weapons that they need. They're looking, they're trying to ramp up domestic production. They're trying to uh, make uh, deals with private companies in various countries for the supply and also manufacturing of weapons. And of course, now the issue of, uh, you know, Russian frozen assets, can those assets be given to Ukraine? as a, we'll a substitution, to, in a way, to the aid which has not been released. Let's come on to that in a second. Natalie, let me ask you simply, do you think Ukraine can survive without US help? Military help is essential. Ukraine will not be able to win this war without uh, US military help. Uh, now, EU also needs to step up. However, in this particular moment where we are, US military aid is essential. And unfortunately, what we see now in Congress is that Ukraine is becoming sort of victim of internal partisanship, transactional politics. And we are seeing that not only in the US, where, and I think we can see it in many other countries, including in Hungary and perhaps Slovakia, but the US is particularly consequential. And this comes to the fore, especially in the year of the elections, obviously. So it becomes part of the bargaining chip. This is so important for many Republicans that not to see Biden win on any front, that they are willing to basically compromise on something that is extremely important also for American, for U.S. leadership in the world, for the message U.S. sends to its allies. And if uh, Americans falter here, uh, obviously Putin's message to the rest of the world would be like, you know, you see how reliable they are. So I think this is very important. Also, the populist argument that we should stop spending money on Ukraine, and particularly when it comes to military, that can be very easily debunked because American government is buying arms from American companies. And they are one of the biggest job uh, making and, and the big part of the economy. So the money actually goes back to the American economy. So it is, uh, you know, it is the point that is definitely worth making in Congress when the deal will finally uh, be made. I'm quite positive that it will happen, but I think it is essential not only for Ukrainian survival, which it is, I would agree with you, but also for so much more. 
Really interesting point you make. Um, what we hear increasingly, and this is an election year for many seats in Congress as well, is uh, look, sort out the southern border. U.S. politics now consumed Republican and Democrat by the question of migration across the southern border. And it was actually explicitly coupled in Congress yes. with this question of support for Ukraine. So you see the the U.S. you know increasingly focusing on its own problems and debating very noisily whether it can afford to support wars abroad. Do you think that that debate in itself is damaging? I think that debate is damaging for the U.S. standing, but also for the U.S. democracy. And the reason why I'm saying is that we have now extremely polarized political situation in uh, the United States. And that kind of polarization is really bad for democracy. It's bad for any country. But uh, the consequences of this uh, taking place in the U.S. are really big for everyone outside of the U.S. as well. So it is very important for the U.S. and the Congress to realize that what is at stake is American democracy domestically and American leadership externally. Olga, you raised, we're coming towards the end of this, but you raised this tantalizing question of Russian assets. I was moderating a panel at Davos last week just about this. And there's an argument for taking what is say, more than three, $300 billion of frozen Russian assets to pay for Ukraine because Ukraine needs the money right now. And there's an argument also made uh, against it of, look, this really sets very dangerous precedents, particularly in terms of taking sovereign uh, assets uh, so that have been invested by the central bank in other people's currencies, particularly the, the dollar, and that this isn't the kind of precedent uh, to set. And then you get into micro arguments about, well, can you take the interest and, and should it be spent on just defense or could it be spent on the economy and, and so on now? Where are you in this? Well, I'm obviously on the side of those who are arguing that this assets should be transferred to Ukraine. Not obviously. I make no presumptions about anyone's uh, <laughs> anyone's views. I believe that these assets should be transferred to Ukraine because basically Ukraine now is a hostage of the U.S. domestic politics and the debate, uh, you know, about the, the aid to Ukraine being linked to U.S. southern border. But the issue, as Natalie rightly said, is not what is at stake is not just Ukraine and Ukraine survival. It is so much bigger and it might create a dangerous precedent, but we are already living in an era of dangerous precedents created by Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, you know, nuclear power that is also using this status as a nuclear power, as a UN Security Council member to basically stop anyone from taking it into account for the things that it's doing in, in Ukraine, war crimes and, and everything it's done before in, in other settings. So we are already living in this very dangerous times. And this year might be really a crucial year for the global order and global security. And I think these are the times when maybe unpopular, unprecedented decisions should be made. I think it needs to happen. But I also think that we should take objections very seriously. I agree with the importance of precedent. And once it is said, whoever decides should make sure that it is absolutely solid. Because in international affairs and in international economic relations as well, precedents matter very much. So I think it can actually be a positive precedent as long as it is really solid. And all the legal objections are taken into account and we have answers. The political precedent of it would be also very important because we also cannot allow an aggressor go entirely unpunished. 
and the consequences, including this type of consequences, are important for deterring future actions uh, like this. And also from Moscow's reaction, we can see that they are really afraid of this happening. So this is an important leverage and this is, you know, something that really can make them change their behavior. I'm all for the principle of showing countries that they cannot invade another one without some kind of punishment. I must say myself, I pause on this one because of the the precedence of, of seizing central bank assets. But we may have to leave that for another time. This is though something that is going to develop and be be fought out in the coming months. So we will come back to that. We're going to have to leave it now there, but Ukraine and much to talk about on Ukraine are very much uh, occupying us in the coming months. So for now, but maybe not for the future, a big thank you to my guests, Olga Topiruk and Natalie Sabanadze. Do follow them both on Twitter or X, whichever name you prefer. Their details, their names are going to be in the show notes. And a reminder that you can find all of our work, including my annual lecture, where I discuss uh, the question of double standards between Ukraine and Gaza and the West treatment of them uh, at some length. Uh, You can find all of that on our website, chathamhouse.org. And you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all major platforms. Please do like, follow, subscribe and leave us a review. Very much look forward to seeing you next week. Goodbye. 